slight technical hiccup. Glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand because we're really going to get right into it this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you could take this home and keep it. You can write your name in it. It's yours. Give from us to you. Um, we're going to be getting into John chapter 9 this morning. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about John chapter 8, and I asked you all to go home and read that because I couldn't get through it all. So I trust that you did that, and, and you're all prepared for chapter 9. Did no? All right. Like, I got a test. The ushers will be passing out. No, I'm joking. Anyways, um, we're getting into John chapter 9 this morning. And, and we have to remember last week, in the, in the midst of a ceremony where it, they lit up the courtyard of the temple in Israel, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's interesting that in the book of John, one of the things that, that John does, the way he authors it, is he sort of got all these, you know, he was with Jesus for, for his whole ministry, and, and he's got these, like, litany of stories. And I think he's got Matthew, Mark, and Luke to choose from, and, and all these other stories that, that he remembers of Jesus, and he's cherry-picking them. to Whenever Jesus makes a big pronouncement, what he does is he cherry-picks a story to show you what it means. So there's this huge pronounced, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes me will never walk in darkness. And then John takes this story and puts it right next to it, and he's like, yeah, that's what happened. I, I remember this story. There's almost a parable, except for it really actually happened. So what I'm going to do, I debated a lot about this, because there are 41 verses in chapter 9, and I thought maybe I could do something like I did last week, but I can't. i got to read through the whole thing, verses 1 through 41. I'd say, get boring for a second, but it's the Word of God, so it shouldn't be. So if you're bored, you should be very convicted, right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I just, had, I just had to throw that in there. John chapter 9, verse 1 through 41. Deep breath. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But the others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? They, so they were divided. Then... 
they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one who you, who, um, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been, who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether, this, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become this man's disciples too? I love how snarky this guy is. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If, there were, if this were not from God, if this man were not from God, he could not do anything. To this in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and he went and found him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is it? The man asked, tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is such a good story. And it's one of the, it's the only story in Scripture of a man that's born blind that has his vision restored. We have other stories in scripture of uh, people who were blind, but it doesn't say they were born blind. It, they, they somehow came uh, about their blindness through disease, a sickness, an injury, or something like that that were healed. This would have been extremely uncommon in the ancient world. No one had ever heard of this. I mean, they said this in the scripture. No one has ever heard of a man born blind. Now they've got like, special goggles. Have you, any of you seen these? They've got these special goggles that that work into your, like, brain receptors and things, and they help you picture a vision. So, like, blind people can actually see a little bit now through these special goggles that they have. They, they literally, like, put pictures in your brain, which I think is a little scary. It's kind of cool. It's a little scary. But first, we, I, I want to take this, like, straight down the line from what we talked about. First, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? Like, this guy was born blind, so question they want to know is, Jesus, who screwed up here? Was it the, the parents of this guy, or was it him that, that he was born blind? 
Which is kind of a funny question, right? I mean, we, we kind of do this today. We do, but I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's kind of a funny question because how can a guy who was born blind sin before he was born, right? Did anybody get that logic? Well, it, actually, in, in some schools of Hebrew thought, you had pre-existence. Your soul pre-existed. So there were some schools of Hebrew thought that said, oh, your soul pre-exists so you can sin before you're born and therefore be born with a birth defect. And that's the way people looked at birth defects. That somehow they sinned before they were born. Somehow they displeased God when they were in the womb or something like that. And then they have a birth defect. And it's sort of an archaic way of looking at it. And, and we, we kind of hold on to these karma-type views today, right? We, sometimes people will be sick or sometimes we ourselves are sick. And what is the question that we, what do I do? We're like, no, you're sick. You caught a you caught bacteria from somebody else. You know, sometimes we, we go, oh man, what, why did I do this? Some sicknesses are caused from sin. You know, you think about sexually transmitted diseases, uh, other addiction-based, HIV from a needle. I mean, yes, some, some sicknesses are caused because you did something wrong. But there's other sicknesses like cancer and things like that are simply a product of the world that we live in. They're literally a product of a fallen world, the fact that we have chemicals and things and food and all sorts of things, and asbestos in our homes or whatever that might be. These things are simply a product of the world that we live in. But we all get like this, right? They're like, they're a good person. They didn't deserve this. God, why did you do this? They're obvious, or somebody's sick, and oh, they're obviously a sinner. I've run across people with that theology. Um, or they're, uh, they're sick, and so therefore God's wrath is on them. I've run across that theology too. This theology was present. One of my favorite examples of this theology is, is the 1700s and Benjamin Franklin. So how many of you knew the Benjamin Franklin greatest contribution to humanity was the lightning rod? Anybody? That might be debatable. He had some other good stuff. The $100 bill, which he obviously made. No, <laughs> the phrase rags to riches. Um, no, I, I'm joking, but, but literally the lightning rod was Benjamin Franklin's like big discovery because that's the whole idea about the, the stick and, or the, um, what was it called? A kite, thank you, kite was key. And it was to see if you could direct this energy called electricity. And he came up with the lightning rod, and, and he didn't patent it. The people who were the most upset by this, there was literally a huge backlash at the time from pastors and clergy. They stood up and said, dare you thwart God's wrath? Because lightning on people's houses and burning is obviously God's wrath on them, right? So there's a huge backlash from pastors at the time who were uh, against scientific discovery. But essentially, the idea was lightning revealed who God wanted to smite. And if you direct that flow of lightning away from that house, then then you, you are allowing somebody to escape God's wrath. And Benjamin Franklin actually studied some theology, and he said, no, Jesus allows you to escape God's wrath, not a lightning rod. And, and he actually put all these pastors to shame, which I love. But anyways, uh, let's get back to the point here. The point remains, there are remnants of this theology around today, that people are sick or blind or something like that because of something they've done. And I love that Jesus' response is, 
It's not anything that anybody has done. It's an opportunity for God to be revealed through him. What Jesus said, my works are going to be revealed in this guy. And, and it's almost a way that Jesus reframed the disciples' perspective on all people. Not just this one man born blind, but on all people. And it's a way that we need to reframe our perspective on all people, not just people. And that is that it's all people have the opportunity for God's works to be displayed in them. For God's character to be revealed to this person. And this is the way that Jesus looked at this guy. It's not that he sinned. It's not that his parents sinned. It's not that anybody did anything wrong. It's that it's an opportunity. This guy is an opportunity for the light of the world to be revealed in this guy. So Jesus obviously gets down and plays in dirt, spits in mud, or spits, makes mud, puts it on his eyes. Like, if only optometrists knew about this today, right? (laughs) If only they knew. But I have this question, like, all through the other Gospels, and, and even some in John, like, Jesus heals instantly, right? He just touches somebody, they're healed. He says, they're healed, they're healed. He heals from a distance. He didn't need to, to get down there and play in the mud. He could have just said, you're healed. Like, do we all agree that Jesus could have done this instantly? But why did he make this man go through this? Why did he play in the dirt? Why did he spit in it? Why did he make mud? Why did he put it on the guy's eyes and make him go wash in the pool of Siloam? Why did he do this? Well, I think it has something to do with who Jesus is. All through the book of John, we see that Jesus isn't just a regular guy. He's not a regular prophet. We, we see the words of Genesis echoed, in the beginning was the word. We see this echo back to the garden all through the book of John. And how did God make the first humans? Genesis 2, 7 says this, Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is an enacted example of Jesus saying, I am the creator making you over in my creation. This is an enacted example of Jesus taking people back to the garden, playing with dirt again and saying, we're going to recreate humanity. We're going to reform humanity. But in order for humanity to be made new, we need to remove our blindness, our spiritual blindness. So I think that's why the song and dance. The Pool of Siloam is, you can still visit it to today. I, I actually, I didn't pay the money to go visit. We didn't have time. But when I was in Israel, I walked right past it, took some pictures of it. But they were, uh, they're pretty, they want you to pay to get in there and actually take a good picture. But anyways, um, I got through the gate a good little shot off on that. <laughs> but you can still visit it to t- today. And the interesting thing is it's sort of like, it's this pool that you don't know where the water source is from. And Israel made this pool. I think it was under Hezekiah. They made this pool, and they, they concealed the water source through Hezekiah's temple because when they were going to get invaded through other people, they still needed water. They still needed water. And so they concealed the source of this, um, of this pool of water. So it seemed like a natural spring, but it really wasn't. It was a, a spring with concealed source of water. I don't know why I told you that. It's just uh, extra knowledge for you today. At least you could say you learned something today, right? But this is a picture, when Jesus puts the mud on this man's face, it's a picture of the Creator gathering dust again for a new creative purpose. And it's something that He wants to do for you and for me. 
it, back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, 30, uh, Isaiah 35, 5, it talks about this. It says, and then it, in the coming, and the days of the Messiah comes, it says this, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Literally, the Messiah will be the light of the world. Light in this, in this way that is being used by Jesus here in this, in this area really echoes back to the creation light that we talked about last week. That first light of creation that wasn't the sun or the moon, but it was, there was darkness, but there was light because God is light. And all the way at the end of the book of Revelation, when you see there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, there's no, he- there's no stars, there's no moon, there's no, there's no sun, but there's light everywhere because Jesus himself is the light. So the Messiah will be the light of the world See, in God's kingdom, I think that we need to get used to supernatural things happening. Because what we're doing here is supernature. It's supernatural. God is supernatural. We want him so many times to operate in the realm of the natural because we're, we're weirded out by like things like healings or we're a little scared by things like that. But the reality is we have a God who is supernatural. Jesus is supernatural. Literally, he supersedes nature. So in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of the Messiah, literally all things are possible. We've heard stories and testimonies in this church of healings. I mean, I think of Marlia Cochran, who happens to not be here today, but the, uh, she needed a kidney. She would die. She needed a kidney, and then all of a sudden, her kidney's operating at like almost nothing percent, not doing well, having to get um, dialysis over and over and over again, and bam, I mean, healings through medical science, but also other healings, too. Random things that you're like, wow, I, I couldn't even imagine that being the case. Last week, I had this, my ear was blo- uh, clogged and blocked up. And, you know, sometimes you have this, and I just kept thinking it's wax and all that stuff. And somebody, I was meeting with another pastor friend of mine, and they said, you know, is everything okay they, they asked me, and I said, yeah, my ear hurts, and it's just plugged, plugged up. And they said, they, and they prayed for me, and it was no big deal. Lord, we pray for Dave's ear to feel better and that you would heal that. And it literally wasn't anything, like, crazy or mystical, but, like, my ear feels great today. And over the next couple of days, it just went, and it was totally fine. It was just totally healed. And it's, it's amazing. We don't expect supernatural things to happen, but we have a God who is super natural, and wants to do these sorts of things. So let's get back to the text here. Did anybody catch when this healing happened? It happened on the Sabbath, right? And if you've been with us in the book of John, you know that Jesus is sort of poking and prodding to leave, doing everything that he does on the Sabbath. Because the Jews had this belief that Every person, every Jew observed the Sabbath, and the whole world would be saved. Like, they literally thought that the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is important, don't, don't get me wrong, but they literally believed that if you did anything other than what you were supposed to do on the Sabbath, then you should be stoned or put to death or put out of the community. Like, this was horrible. And yet, Jesus did a couple of things wrong. One, he made mud. That was wrong on the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And two, he healed a man on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, again, is poking and prodding. And, and there's these four scenes. First, he 
the, Jesus is, uh, I'm sorry, the, the man who's born blind goes to his neighbors, and the neighbors are like, well, this is the guy, but let's take him to the Pharisees, and they go to the Pharisees, and the, the Pharisees, um, they're the theological religious leaders of the time. They are the pastors, the priests they're of society. They are in charge of the theology. They are, they, they, everybody goes to them with their questions in the world. And they were very accessible. And because if a healing really did happen, it must have been God. So we got to go to the Pharisees. So the neighbors took this man to, the, to their religious leaders. And then they questioned the man, and then they questioned his parents. They said, is this really the guy? And it turns out it was. And then they go back to the man formerly blind, and they tell the man, um, I, I love this, that they start asking him questions. And this guy's kind of, like he answers, he plays along, he answers their questions, but then he kind of gets snarky with them, right? Like, hey, if you want to follow him, it sounds like you guys want to be his disciples too. And they said, we know that you were a sinner at birth. Actually taking this back one. Who sinned, this man or his parents? They had those same beliefs that because this man was born blind, that he was somehow a sinner. In, going back to verse 25, this man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. The one thing I know is I was blind, but now I see. I want to pause there for a second. I was blind, but now I see. So, uh, what does our world demand to know about Jesus? Evidence, right? They, there, there needs to be some sort of evidence to follow Jesus. But the evidence is not necessarily, I mean, we could go over the philosophical understandings, the historical proofs of Jesus. We can go over all that really fun, interesting stuff. But the real evidence is, I was blind, but now I see. The real evidence is, I was lost, but now I'm found. The real evidence is you and your life. That's it. Your story. That's really what matters. And so when you're addressing your big five that we talk about at our church, the, the, the big five people that, who just need to start, who need to see Jesus in the way that you see Jesus, it's your story that matters. I was blind, but now I see. Verse 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I have already told you and you didn't listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? That man is a picture of all of us. He is walking in darkness his whole life, and then he comes into the light. He's never seen Jesus up until this point. I mean, because he, he was blind. He couldn't see him. And Jesus put mud over his eyes. He had to go wash. I mean, he couldn't see Jesus up to this point, so he didn't even know what the man looked like. But I love the sarcasm here. He's saying, hey, you're asking me so much about him, you obviously want to follow him. I've actually used this before. There's a, a guy... A friend of mine came to Christ um, later on, and he was in college. He was talking to me, asking me all these questions about how can you be a youth pastor? How can, you're a smart guy. How can you believe in all this stuff? And I, basically, I used this verse. I said, hey, uh, you're asking me a lot. Do you just want to follow Jesus? Like, is that what you're looking for? And he gets all mad, and I told him, listen, I'm not going to literally done with him because he kept asking me question after question. He was mean, kind of. And I said, you need to go look for yourself. A couple years later, I got a phone call. Hey, Dave, this is Steve. His name is Steve. I wanted to have coffee with you. And I'm like, what does he want to have coffee with me for? You know, like, and he told me, he said, you, you challenged me to go look for myself, and you, would stop, you stopped answering my questions. Do you remember that? And I was like, yeah. He said, I looked for myself, and I found Jesus. And it was just such a cool story. And I'm like, 
man, I wish I could chalk that one up to evangelism, but that was like, dude, seriously, you're bugging me. <laughs> like, God works even through sinners like me, you know? Um, he just kept going and going and going. Anyways, let's look at verses uh, 28 and 29. Then they hurled insults at the man and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. I wanted to point out with this verse, it's not an either thing if you're a Christian. It's not like, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but not Moses. As Christians, it's like, we're Old Testament and New Testament people here. Like, we need just as much disciples of Moses as we are of Jesus. Like, we need to understand what happened in that time and, and the law so that we can understand. It's okay to be a disciple of Moses, but be a disciple of Jesus. And these guys rejected God the Creator and said, no, we're only disciples of Moses. I just want to say it's okay to be a student of the Old Testament. It's really good. Let's keep going in verse uh, 30. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this replied, you were, you were steeped in, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. I love the reversal that happens here. This man who was born blind is an outlier in society, yet now he is debating religious folks because he can see the truth and they cannot see. And literally, the religious leaders of the time became blind guides for Israel. And yet this man who was blind, and by the way, if you're blind and poor, there's different ways that people looked at, at poor folks back then. They call them the unfortunates. They said that's just how God made them. They're poor, blind, whatever. They beg on the streets. That's the way they would have looked at homeless people back then. They're the unfortunates. That's what God just willed for that person to be. And so that's who they are. And so now you have these religious elites who believing God willed them to be superior to everyone else, debating this guy who's an unfortunate, who is nobody, who is blind and, and literally had no status in Jewish life. And now this guy's religious arguments are so much better than the guides, the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. I love that, how God kind of turns the tables here. This man was obedient to Jesus, and the Pharisees were not. So the man who was physically blind received both physical sight and spiritual sight, whereas the religious leaders had their physical sight, yet they were the ones who were really blind at the end of this story. In this last section, Jesus confirms that. In verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who, who see will become blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with them heard, and they said, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So there were these Pharisees, and they're like, wait a minute, Jesus, we're not blind. Why are you calling us blind? And Jesus says, since you, you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Yet they can't see what's right in front of them, that Jesus is the Messiah. And that, that he had been fulfilling that all the way from the moment he stepped onto this earth. All the way from his birth to John the Baptist, to the making water into wine, to feeding the 5,000, 
to claiming that he's got the spring of living water, that, that you could have that too, claiming that he is the light of the world, claiming that he is the bread of life. I mean, Jesus has been showing this all through the time, and since the religious leaders did not want to give up their power and authority and just say, wow, you fit all the criteria, they became the blind guides. In fact, all of John chapter 10 next week is all about the blind guides of Israel, the blind shepherds of Israel. And I have to say this, I wrote two sermons this week, I wrote 9 and 10. I'm really excited for next week. But just come next week, you're not going to be disappointed, I'm really excited for it. Anyways, but in this condition, the, the blind in, in vision, it made me think of something out of the book of Revelation. Shocker, right? Because we spent so much time in the book of Revelation. John wrote the book of Revelation. Jesus revealed to him uh, this vision uh, uh, of the church, and it was a letter to the churches. And in, in the book of Revelation, he was talking to this church. Jesus wanted to address specifically the church of Laodicea. And in Revelation three seventeen through 18, it says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you could become rich, and white clothes to wear so you could cover your shameful nakedness, and slab to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is the church that was lukewarm. This is the church that said, Jesus said, you are neither hot nor cold, but I want to spew you out of my mouth. Hot being the, remember, the church of Laodicea was right in between, it did not have a natural water source. It was right in between two natural water sources, hot springs to the north and cold, refreshing springs to the south. And the water that they got piped in was literally full of clay and and nasty, dirty, rocky water because it was over like 15 miles away was their nearest water source. And it was lukewarm. And lukewarm, disgusting water induced vomit. So Jesus says, you are like the water of your town. I want to spew you out of my mouth. Because you claim you can see, and yet you are blind. I think the same could be said of the spiritual condition of the church of America. And and I'm not saying all people, because in the condition of being lukewarm, it's not all people. Some people are for Jesus, some people aren't but the majority are lukewarm. And I think it's the same that could be said of the church of America because here's why. In, in Revelation 3.17 it says, you say you're rich, you've acquired wealth. We're very wealthy. We're very wealthy. And the condition that, that wealth brings is, I don't need a thing. Right? That's what wealth does to us. It, it blinds us to the fact that we actually need Jesus. That we actually have be dependent on a God who loves us. That's what wealth does to us. It makes us forget that. Not that having wealth is wrong. Don't hear me wrong. Not that having it's wrong, but the condition of it and seeking after that makes us forget that we need Jesus. Makes us forget our dependence. It makes us say, I don't need a thing. And the church of Laodicea, Laodicea was the center of banking for the region. And there was a medical center. They, they had money on top of money. They had money they didn't even know to do with. And it caused them to grow into a spiritual condition called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when you see yourself as righteous. Right? Shocker. Self-righteousness. When you see yourself as, I'm good. I got this. I could do that. I can handle this on my own. When you see yourself as being the all-in-all and you're able to do whatever. 
That's self-righteousness. Because in self-righteousness, you don't need the righteousness. You don't need external righteousness. You have internal righteousness. You have what you believe is right. It's like those folks who are right all the time. You ever met anybody that's never wrong? No? Anybody here never wrong? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we run through, we meet these people who are self-righteous, and, and sometimes we, we look in the mirror, and it's us. And that causes a condition of lukewarmness, because when you're self-righteous, when, when you believe you have all your righteousness bottled up in yourself, sometimes you look in the mirror and go, I'm great, right? Conquer the world. I can handle it. I got it covered. But really, the gospel tells us that our righteousness is just filthy rags. It's nothing compared to the righteousness of Jesus. And if we ever want to be righteous, then we need to be covered under his righteousness. That's the whole point. Self-righteousness makes us blind. And that is the point of the Pharisees. They got into a point where they had so much power, they had so much wealth, they had so much prestige that they didn't need anybody else. They were good. And as a result, they became spiritually blind. And the reason why I bring up the book of Revelation is because I, I believe John wrote that before he wrote the book of John. And I think maybe he has this somewhere in the back of his mind in these verses. I don't know. It's just a thought I had. But maybe he does. And what really struck me is that so many times we just, our life is organized. We have these conveniences, and we, we don't need Jesus. In fact, we've, we've kind of like found ways with, through technology to have false community. We've had, found ways to have false fellowship. We've found ways to have like this false euphoria phones and through other means that we've sort of begun to engineer Jesus away from our lives. That's just a thing. But self-righteousness is an everyday thing. Because when we grow into that condition, we literally become blind. Maybe there's some of you today who simply need to confess, God, I'm blind right now. That's me. I've, I've grown into that area where whether maybe it's the wealth that's blinded me, maybe it's the, just the mentality of I could do all things on my own, I don't need anybody, it, maybe that's blinded you. It, it's, maybe some of you simply need to admit, Lord, today I am blind and I need to see. There's a prayer I want to invite you to pray today. It's called the Jesus Prayer. It's literally the earliest prayer of the church. The early church would have people pray this over and over and over again. And it's simply this. It's found in the Gospels, but it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When you recognize that you're simply at, at the base level that you're a sinner, when you recognize that, there's really no room for self-righteousness. Because you recognize that you need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So maybe you're here today and you're, you're blind and you want to see. I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire. I counsel you to buy slab for your eyes from Jesus. I counsel you to look at Revelation 3 and, and to lay down that worldly stuff and to go lay down that self-righteousness and to ask for Jesus to overtake your own righteousness, to borrow his righteousness. What we're going to do today is we're going to take communion and, and that's going to be our response to today's message. And what we're going to do in communion 
is that we're going to take this body and, and blood of Jesus, and it's going to remind us that what we have in our own bodies is not enough. It's going to remind us that our, our, we can't do it on our own. It's going to, the blood is going to remind us that we can't be saved by our blood, but by his blood who cleanses us. That's what it is. I want to invite the band to come forward, and I want to um, actually invite the ushers to come forward as well. And here's what we're going to do. The band is going to lead us in a song. And um, I want to invite you, as the ushers come forward, I, I simply want to invite you to hold on to the elements of communion this morning and to, to ask the Lord, Lord, is there spots in my life where I'm blind? Are, are there spots where I, I can't see? And then as we, as the song ends, I'm going to lead us in taking communion together. And so I want to invite the ushers to come forward right now.